0: And so this morning, would you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Luke 1, verse 57, as we pick up where we left off in the text last week. And we'll be reading all the way through from verse 57 through verse 80 today. A passage found in your Bible under the translator heading, The Birth of John the Baptist. We'll recount the story of John's birth and then draw our attention to Zechariah's song that he sings in response to this occasion. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias Evangelio de Lucas, capítulo 1, versículo 50 y a 80. Nacimiento de Juan el Bautista. And if you're new to the Bible this morning or you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right, that's okay. This is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. Uh, we're learning all of us together each and every Sunday as we open the scriptures to hear God speak, and to see Jesus Christ revealed to us through the pages that are before us. And so far this Christmas season, we've learned about this Christ, that he was born from sinners for sinners, and at that, he was born for sinners to be their Savior, a Savior who was born to bring those humble sinners, as we learned last week, who would receive him up to the highest heights of joy. This is where we've been for the past 3 weeks. And as we carry on this morning uh, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we'll build atop this foundation. It's true. Christ was born to bring sinners into joy. The birth of Christ does hold out to us good tidings of great joy and peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. Luke 2:14. But this morning, here's the burning question each of us must answer in our hearts, and it's this Is God pleased with me? On what basis could that possibly be true? And if he is, will he continue to be pleased with me? What confidence do you and I have that having received the joy, Jesus, we can remain in the joy of Jesus. This morning, do you fear for one reason or another that the joy that Christ came to bring, that we've been celebrating and singing about for these past weeks now, that this joy is not for you? That somehow though you've heard He's invited you into this great party, an ongoing celebration of joy that's found in Him, that somehow you don't belong there. That you've heard that His joy comes, yes, to those who don't deserve it, but you really still just believe that you don't deserve it. Maybe because of who you are, because of what you've done, because of how much you've considered the joy of Jesus to be Nothing in comparison to the joys of this world. Or maybe, this morning, you've received the joy of Jesus, but even as a Christian, you're really afraid, in your heart of hearts, that you don't belong here. Like you've been invited to a party, an ugly sweater party, even. And everyone else is dressed for the occasion, but you've somehow found yourself to be there without a sweater. What am I doing here? I don't really belong with Jesus. I don't really belong with his people. I'm out of place. Or perhaps you've found yourself at the party, and you're just now realizing that your ugly sweater is way uglier than everyone else's. And it's, you know, way too far, way too much. You've way overdone it. You have missed the boat on this party. And you desperately don't want anyone to notice just how much uglier how much further out there your sweater is than anyone else. Kind of like the classic animated movie, Mulan. You're in the army, right? (laughs) But you're trying not to be exposed. You're always impersonating, always hiding, fearful that you'll be found out, even though you're here and you're in perceptibly. You're fearful that you'll be found out as you come to church, as you share in the joy of Jesus together, that you'll be found out as having your life not as together as all those around you, like everyone else seems to. That you'll be found out as not being joyful like those around you seem to be. That you'll be found out as apathetic toward the things of God. Found out as to be struggling with sin and temptation more than anyone else around you. And because of this, you're fearful that you'll be exposed and found out as a hypocrite. And because of this, you're at the party, but you're not having any fun at the party. Your experience in the joy of Jesus is being cut short by the fear of embarrassment, the fear of man, the fear of not fitting in because of all these things you see in yourself. So because of that, consequently, you pull back you don't press into others very much, don't unburden your soul to them, and you don't appear before God in worship, in gladness. And because of this, you feel even worse, and that feeling of not belonging and not fitting in, in hypocrisy, sets in and worsens. Or perhaps, finally, <laughs> you're at the party, but in the back of your mind, you're afraid that you might be asked to leave. <laughs> In the back of your mind, you're afraid you just won't be able to keep up the Christian life. To per- persevere until the end, to keep yourself in the joy of Jesus, you're in. But maybe you find yourself this morning so preoccupied with whether you'll be able to stay in that your joy in Jesus right now is diminished. Instead of living the Christian life out of a place of confidence, You're living it out of a posture of fear that you must continue to be doing enough to remain a party guest, to keep God pleased with you, to not be cast out for your continued failures and falling short. Maybe this morning your Christian life is characterized not by an assurance of your acceptance before God. In lacking assurance, you're lacking rest for your soul. And fear is driving your Christian life and constraining the joy that's found in Christ. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. But whatever fears you're facing, the Christmas season that we're celebrating has traditionally been held out uh, as the hope, right, of better things to come. Judy Garland and John Lennon and many others, they've sang about the coming of Christmas as the dawn of a new day in which Judy sings, all our troubles will be out of sight. And there's hope for a new situation, as Lennon sings, without any fear. And in the text before us today, Zechariah the priest, he actually sings a similar song as Judy and John and so many others. He connects the dots on Christmas and the end of fear. In what is traditionally known as the Benedictus, the song that we read in Luke chapter 1, He agrees that the coming of Christmas does in fact mean the end of our fears. But, importantly, he disagrees on the source of those troubles and threats and the solution to live lives without fear for all our days. The song of Zechariah, which we'll focus upon this morning, it points us to the reality that Christmas really is the antidote to the fears that poison our lives. The song, of the, seasons, the song of the Seasons, they're right, these songs, in their hopeful sentiment. It's not just wishful thinking to connect the arrival of Christmas with the end of fear, but the songs of the season just don't dig down deep enough to get to the real roots of fear in our hearts. What are the greatest threats to our experience of the joy of Jesus? And just how does the birth of Christ relieve them? This will become clear as we read and receive God's words to us this morning. So, without further ado, will you read with me in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. Luke writes, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He sang his song These are God's words to us. We need the help of God's Spirit, so let's pray. Lord, as we come to you now and we sit before your Word, we ask that you would bless the reading and the receiving and the believing of this Word, that you would work through it by the power of your Spirit to reveal your Son and to confront and comfort the fears in our hearts to assure us that the joy of Jesus is something that is held out there for us, to make us confident in you and your steadfast love and faithfulness to us. Lord, we ask that you would work in this way for the glory of your name and for the good of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So as we continue on in the birth stories of Jesus, we come across here the birth story. Of John the Baptist. And there's a lot we could say about John the Baptist and his ministry and particularities of uh, the verses in the song here. We won't be able to cover all of it today, so we're gonna do our best to to set us up to really dive into where I believe the Lord would have us to go. But by brief way of 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 summary here, this is the story, in part, of the birth of John the Baptist and his father's response to this occasion. John the Baptist was the son that God had promised to provide to the barren Elizabeth in the aged Zechariah, a promise which he keeps in this text, much to the joy and wonder of John's parents and their neighbors, showing us that according to Luke 1.37, there is nothing impossible for God. And the function of this miraculous birth in the narrative is to say this, that if God could bring forth this son from the barren woman, could he not also bring forth a son from the virgin woman, who would accomplish all that God had promised to do in and through him. John's birth tells us that God's promises are good. He'll keep them for the glory of his name and for the joy of our souls. So this story that we've just read, it is intended to grant the reader confidence in God's promises and to draw them further into what God would accomplish through each of these promised sons that we read about. Verses 57 through 66, they indicate that the first of these promised sons, being John, would play a special role in the history of redemption. Everything from his seemingly impossible birth to his unconventional name to the miraculous healing of his father who was nine months mute after his initial unbelief to the angel's announcement, everything about this suggested the child was a special child. Everyone was asking, what then will this child be? And in answer to this question what will this child be? His father, being filled with the Holy Spirit, sings a song in verses 68 through 79. A song which celebrates the wonderful role that the son of the barren woman will play and how that role connects to the son of the virgin who is to come. This son of Zechariah, John, he will be called the prophet of the Most High who will go before the coming of the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of God's coming salvation to his people. John has a special role to play, to prepare them to receive what God would do in Christ. And because God has kept his promise to bring forth this promised prophet, Zechariah the priest sings a song celebrating that God will indeed keep his most precious of promises to his people, that he would keep them through the Christ that John the Baptist would go before and prepare the way of. And listen, for us this morning, chief among these promises, among the things that God said he will do in and through this Jesus, the son of the virgin who was to come. Chief among these promises, we look toward verses 74 and 75. God would keep his promises to his people, all to the wonderful end, that look with me, actually beginning in verse 73, at the end. To grant us, his people, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him. Without what? Without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is at the center, at the heart, of what God is promising to do through the one to whom John the Baptist would point, that we, people like us, might serve a God like him without any fear, in holiness and in righteousness, not just for one day, not just for a season, not just for a time, but for all our days, that we would be brought into a situation of fearless living before the living God. We see Christ, he was born, To bring us into a lasting experience of peace, of joy, and of life before God. Zechariah's song indicates this in those two verses. To welcome us, in other words, into a party that we would never be kicked out from. But how did he accomplish this? What will give us rest from our uh, fearful hearts? What will ground our hearts in the confidence of this truth? That we can truly remain there with God for all our days what's the remedy for our fears? Well, the gospel. It has an answer for us, and it's great news. But this morning, before we get to the remedy for fear, we first must uncover its roots. We need to dig down to the heart of fear in order that the gospel's fear-relieving power will work most effectively in our hearts. And this brings us to the two points that we'll be examining for the rest of our time together this morning. God promises that through the Messiah, to whom John would point, he would usher his people into a fearless situation, a fearless existence before him. And we ask the question, wow, and from what fears are we to be delivered? Point number one, we'll examine today the root of fear. That is, what cause do we have to fear? Why would this be the linchpin of this promise and, and prophecy that God would bring us into a situation without fear? What's the cause? Number two, point number two, there is the remedy for fear. What is the gospel's solution to it? Beginning with our first point, we turn our attention back into Zechariah's song to search out the root of fear. And if you look with me at verse 71, In his song, Zechariah describes the situation of mankind apart from Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, as one of captivity to enemies who hate us. This is verse 71. And I don't know about you, but living under the constant threat of enemies who hate us seems like an understandable cause of fear. There's a situation not of neutrality, but a situation of antagonism, God's people We, apart from Christ, have something to be afraid of, and it's enemies who hate us. Understanding this, Zechariah, the priest, celebrates the coming of Christ because this means that God will once again visit and redeem his people from captivity. Captivity to their enemies, just as he did back in the exodus from Egypt. This is a language that verse 68, if you look with me, is meant to evoke. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's meant to recall our minds back to the Exodus event. So that we would understand that our fears will be relieved as our enemies are conquered through a new sort of Exodus event. A battle, a rescue, a triumph over over enemies by God's powerful and saving acts. Zechariah's song is painting the picture that we need an Exodus to happen, to end our fears. And now, by contrast to this, for John Lennon, who we referred to earlier, (laughs) he being infused with all the sentiment of the Christmas season, uh, his hope is that we would face our own fears (laughs) and just maybe triumph over them. In his 1971 song written in protest of the Vietnam War, right, speaking of enemies and external threats, he sings with the Harlem Children's Choir, War is over if you want it. War is over. Exodus is available if you want it to be. There is hope for a fearless tomorrow if everyone just gets their act together. And having grown tired of all the strife around us, of the captivity, of the animosity, if we all just would commit to world peace, we'll be delivered from our enemies when we choose to have no more enemies. That's the hope, that's the exodus that Lennon envisions. But for Zechariah, this won't do. As he puts it in his song, the Lord must visit us. He must come through his Christ to comfort our fears. For we cannot will them away any more than the Hebrew slaves could will about the exodus from Egypt. Christmas was the answer to fear because it was the arrival of a savior who would bring about a new and greater exodus in which mankind would be delivered from the hand of our most fearsome and threatening enemies, as it says in verse 74. And so, just who then are the enemies who hold us captive in fear? It's an appropriate question to ask. In Zechariah's day, the chief enemy of the Jewish people, kind of apparently on the surface was the Roman Empire, an external threat to Israel, whose shadow of oppression loomed large over the Jews, as well as many other nations. They were a foreign oppressor to Israel who kept them from serving God in perfect freedom. They posed a a circumstantial obstacle to peace and joy in God, and they were themselves, the Roman Empire, a formidable threat externally to God's people. They could do violence to them. They could come in and really give them a bad day. But the question is, did Christ come only to address external threats and enemies that are apparent in that sort of way, to alleviate difficult circumstances? Or did he come to establish a freedom from fear that would penetrate and go down to the very heart of us? And now, as I say that and ask that question, don't get me wrong, we can say that the kingdom of Christ did come in and did conquer the kingdom of Rome. The Roman Empire is gone, but Christ reigns eternal, and many more empires will rise and fall, but Christ will reign everlasting. And so we're not want to make little of the Romans and the threat they might have caused to Israel, or little of Christ's victory over Israel's oppressors back then. But This morning I submit to you, that's not all he came to do in delivering his people from their enemies. Commenting on this situation, R.C. Sproul says this, this reference to enemies here in the text, in biblical terminology, is not simply a promise that God is going to rescue the Jews from the Romans, or the Philistines, or the Amorites, or any of those other nations that constantly besieged Israel. Rather, the ultimate enemy, listen to this that will be crushed by the horn of salvation, is the devil, the prince of darkness, and all his minions who are part of the curse, death, darkness, disease, and everything else that puts a shadow over the joy of human life, everything else that would constrain our joy in Jesus. All these enemies will be conquered by the Messiah. This is the hope of Zechariah's song. And John Calvin, he agrees with this, as he writes earlier. Unquestionably, he says, Zechariah was well aware that the principal war of the church of God is not with flesh and blood, but with Satan and all his armament, by which he labors to accomplish our everlasting ruin. Though the church is also attacked by outward foes, and though we also face external threats, to our joy, obstacles to our peace. Though the church is attacked by these outward foes and is delivered from them by Christ, yet, as the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, it is chiefly Satan, the prince of this world and his legions that, present, that the present discourse re- relates to. Our attention, he concludes, is also directed to the miserable condition of men out of Christ lying prostrate under the tyranny of the devil church Jesus was born to cure this miserable condition that we find ourselves in to defeat satan who is the enemy of our souls who accuses us of our sin who tempts our souls toward sin and who has the power over the over death why because as the bible tells us death is the wages of sin, sin being any failure on our part to love and to obey God as we ought to, a failure to worship God as he deserves, and simultaneously the audacious and tragic choice that we make in our own hearts every single day to worship anything other than this true and living God who is life himself and joy himself. Satan holds us in captivity because we are sinners. And as such, sin and death and the devil, these are the enemies that we face. These are the enemies that make it impossible for us to stand before God without fear. And in all this, sin is the first domino to fall. The crux of power uh, for Satan and death to reign in our lives and cut off our joy. These are the true enemies that Jesus came to defeat. As Charles Spurgeon says, What then truly was it that made us afraid? Were we not afraid of God because we felt that we were lost through sin? Afraid because we know our sin deserves judgment. Afraid Because sin brings God's displeasure. Afraid because sin and death, they separate us from the party being thrown by the God of life. Sin is the ugliest sweater that goes too far and will not allow us to get our foot in the door. So, as we dig down to the roots of fear in Zechariah's song, the question that emerges from this is is this how can we hope to get in stay in and live in the joy of Jesus in light of our own sinful condition given this miserable condition we're confronted with some scary thoughts that could arise in our hearts that could steal our peace and joy we're confronted with thoughts like how can i belong In God's presence. Sin, I know, keeps me from even getting in the door. We know we are not holy as God is holy. We know we are defiled and corrupt. And our actions and affections are far from conformity to God's own character. We know we've sinned and fallen short of him. And so without our captivity to sin being dealt with, We know we cannot come before God in freedom for any of our days, much less all our days. In light of this reality, we can struggle with the thought of, how can I keep, then, from being exposed as the sinner I continue to be? Being aware of our condition, we could live in fear of being seen just as we are. And at that, Satan comes, the enemy of our souls, And he accuses us day and night and reminds us of the the truth that we never, of ourselves, deserve the party invitation. We don't belong. We can't get our foot in the door. Satan comes to accuse us in light of our sin that we shouldn't be here. He heaps guilt and shame upon guilt and shame as he reminds our consciences of just how ugly our sweater of sin really is. And if we cannot answer his accusations as they come to us, we'll find it increasingly difficult to access the joy of Jesus. He'll accuse and then tempt and being increasingly discouraged by our own sin and concluding that our sweater is already so ugly, that we're already so dirty. We'll be more and more likely to give in to the sin that he tempts us with. Concluding, well, if I'm already a hypocrite, I might as well just be who I am. We ask questions like, how can we stay in and not be cast out for our failure to be holy enough and righteous enough? How can we remain at this party, at this celebration of life with God? Should I somehow manage to be holy enough and righteous enough to get in? What hope do I have that I'll remain holy enough and righteous enough to stay in. Knowing that God's standards of holiness and righteousness are perfect, to remain in his presence, we'll need to remain as holy and as righteous as God himself is holy and righteous. How is this possible? How do we have any hope that that could be true of us? If we can't answer these questions that are before us this morning, we we do church have cause for fear, indeed. For once again, contrary to Lennon's song, when it comes to our great enemies, war is not over. Just because we want it to be over, we can't just choose to no longer be captive to sin and death and Satan. We cannot just will about an exodus from these enemies. We cannot will, verses 78 and 79, the sunrise from on high that will give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. We can't just bring it about through wanting and wishful thinking. And at this, we've come to the root of fear that we face. And it leads us to this burning question that we must answer in our hearts. And it's this. This all being true, How can sinners like us live before the living God in holiness and righteousness for all of our days? How can this be possible? Well, this morning, we say thanks be to God that the gospel provides an answer to this question. And this brings us to our second point, the remedy for fear. We've uncovered the root of fear, and now we look to the remedy for fear. Christ was born to deliver us from fear, by delivering us from the enemies of sin and death and the devil. We've established, Zechariah's song tells us, that we needed an exodus. And Zechariah, he sings for joy, that in Christ we have the exodus we need. So the question becomes, how then will this new and greater exodus come about? And this is the focus of the rest of our time together today. How will this new exodus come about? Jesus, Zechariah, points in his song to the reality that he was born to rescue us from the gravest of threats, being our own condition of sinfulness and all that comes with it. Jesus was born to rescue us from the greatest of threats that we face before a holy and righteous God to break the bonds of fear that hold us captive from joy. And he was born to do this both in the subjective sense of our affections and our emotions, that is, setting our hearts at ease before God. But also, quite objectively, he was born to cut off the cause for fear from its very roots. He came to cast out fear, uh, cast out the fear of sinners in the presence of a holy God and to enable us the sinners that we are, to serve and to worship and to live before God in freedom forevermore. So what is powerful enough to overcome this fear that we face? What is strong enough to liberate us from our greatest enemies and propel us on through a life that is free and happy and joyful in worship to our God? Well, God's word, it tells us this that the answer to our greatest fears is the arrival of perfect love. Once again, the answer to our greatest fears is the arrival of perfect love. Please turn with me. Uh, We don't often do this, but turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and we'll look at a couple of verses here together the answer to our greatest fears is the arrival of perfect love. And looking with me at verse 18 of 1 John chapter 4, we read this from the Apostle John. He says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The answer to our fears is the arrival of perfect love because as we just read, perfect love casts out our fears. How is this accomplished? How does Perfect love cast out fear. First, we'll see in one of two ways that this occurs by taking away our fear of punishment. In love, God sent his Son into the world to relieve our fear of punishment for our sin. Look with me, maybe turn the page back over in First John, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 4 where we see the love of God in action, in the Father sending the Son. And I remind you, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet unlovable, God, in steadfast and free faithfulness, set his love upon us and sent his Son for us that we might remain with him forever, that we might have confidence that we won't be kicked out of the party. And here's how he did it. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 4. John says this In this, the love of God, that is the perfect love of God that casts out our fear, was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world. This is what we celebrate at Christmas and the birth of Christ, so that we might live through him, that we might live before God all our days through him. How was this accomplished? Reading on in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God so as to make ourselves worthy or deserving or acceptable, you know, for his love, to merit it in any way. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, here it is, the propitiation for our sins. This is how we might find life with God all our days, even though we deserved Punishment and judgment for our sin. Propitiation, if that's an unfamiliar word to you, means that Christ came to offer a a sacrifice. He came to give his life for our life. And in giving his life, he satisfied the penalty that we deserved for our sin. And he took for us upon the cross the righteous and just wrath of God toward our sin such that after the cross there would be no more punishment to remain but that our debt would be paid in full our penalty would be satisfied as we sang earlier justice would be satisfied so that all that separated us from God all that barred our entry into the door of the house where the party is happening would be removed would be taken away Christ was born to bear our punishment to take away our fear of God's just judgment for our sin, our fear that we would have as sinners of coming into his presence, right? Because that's anything but joyful if our sin hasn't been dealt with and our penalty paid in full, but Christ came to cast out our fear by taking away our punishment. Because of this, because our punishment for our sin is removed in the cross of Christ, The devil no longer has any grounds upon which to accuse us of sin because any sin that he might accuse you of, any sin that you might accuse yourself of, has already been dealt with, has already been settled, has already been nailed to the cross of Christ. So, objectively, legally, in the courtroom of heaven, there's no charge against you that will stick because Christ has taken your penalty and your punishment in full. You're free, you're clear, you're forgiven. God has dealt with your sin. And now this is wonderful, but it gets even better. Because not only was Christ born to take away the negative consequences of our sin, he also came to give us the positive status that was his before God. And because of this, because we stand before God as we come into his presence, as Christ stands before God, we don't have reason. We don't have cause to fear and so the first thing that perfect love came to cast out was our punishment for sin, the second thing perfect love has come to cast out is our fear of banishment from God, our fear that we won't be able to belong our fear that we cannot remain here that God's love toward us and pleasure over us is conditioned by our loveliness before him and our pleasing service to him our fear that if we don't measure up sufficiently, our experience of joy will lessen. Our fear that if we don't measure up sufficiently, God might just cast us out. Church, Jesus was born to relieve this fear by giving his own position before God to us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 30. You don't need to turn there, I'll, just, I'll read it to you, but look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 30. Chapter 1, verse 30. He says this, And because of him, that is God, the one who in love sent his Son for us, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and listen to this, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What Paul is saying here is that when we receive Christ by faith, We receive the righteous and holy status that belongs to him as our own. So that as we come into God's presence, he doesn't see the true ugliness of our sweater, but he sees Christ's holiness, that is, sanctification, his being set apart from all sin and evil, and Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience to God's law, perfect worship of God in his life. He sees these things as belonging to us, as our own. Because of this, we can belong to God for all our days. Because in Christ, his own status of holiness and righteousness before God is considered as our own. And as he ever lives before God, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. We have the confidence that we will as well ever live before God, living now and forever in the joy of Jesus. Christ, he gives us his own sweater, as it were, so that we have confidence that we'll never be kicked out of the party. As long as he's there, we'll be there too. And this morning, if hearing this, you've never received the love of God in Christ Jesus before, know that today, that joyful and eternal life before him for all your days It can begin right now, today. Believe that Jesus, he went to the cross for your sin so that your fear of punishment would be removed. Trust that as you place your faith in him and say in your heart, Jesus, please be mine so that I can have you and everything that is yours. God will look at you with the perfect love of the most wonderful father and say that you are his. Believe this morning in Christ, trust in Him, and be freed from fear and ushered into a party that will never end. And for the rest of us, (laughs) there's much we could say as to how we might respond to this word. But let me just briefly say that we ought to respond to this word of God's love toward us, his free, his unconditioned and faithful love to send his Son for us, to bear with us for all our days. We should respond to this free love by worshiping God freely. We should respond to unconditional love with uninhibited worship. That because of Christ, God accepts all of our imperfect worship as a pleasing sacrifice to him. He sent his Son into the world in order for you and I to live in the joyful freedom of his own acceptance. An acceptance that should cause us to worship him without any fear of being unworthy or unwelcome. Without any fear of what others around us might think. With loud songs, even if we can't sing very well. With clapping hands, even if we can't find the beat. And all the affection of one who has been delivered from their greatest enemies? Would we see Sunday mornings, and e- even more than that, all of our lives as before God? This is the situation that Christ has brought us into. And would we do all that we do with the confidence that because of Christ, you can go to work, you can raise your children, you can do household chores, you can take a vacation, go to a concert, spend time with your friends, and enjoy Christmas dinner? to the glory of God. We're at the party, and nothing can change that. And I pray that our our enjoyment of that celebration would increase and increase as the perfect love of God casts out continually the fears that come up in our hearts. As we've seen this morning, the arrival of God's perfect love in Christ, it is the answer to our greatest of fears. The love which came for us, it gives us the confidence that the joy of Jesus is truly a party we'll never be kicked out of, never asked to leave. And so would we respond right now by first praying and then raising our voices without fear to the God who was made low for us in love? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that in love you sent your Son for us, and that, Jesus, in love you laid your life down for us, and, Holy Spirit, that in love you've poured out this love of God in our hearts, by which we might, though we were once sinners, cry out to God, not in fear, but in love and devotion, Abba, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you set us free from our captivity to fear, and you usher us into a joy, everlasting and eternal to be celebrated in your presence. I pray that you would, Lord, use this word to alleviate our fears, that you would use this word to stoke the fires of our worship, and that you would use this word to glorify yourself in us as we live in the confidence that we belong to you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name.